Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter, reading the first 18 verses, and it is page 1497. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on, on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Brian. Let's uh, just take a moment to quiet our hearts and minds in silent prayer before we reflect on this word. Amen. <clears throat> well, today's story of the Magi, King Herod, the Holy Family, reveals the dark side of the Christmas story. There's a lot about the story we don't know. We don't know a lot about the Magi. We don't really know how many there were. 
Tradition deduces there are three because of the three gifts, but we, we don't know. It may be true, but we're not sure. For that matter, we're not quite sure who these, these guys were. What we do know about the Magi is they're wealthy, they study a lot, and they're fascinated with the stars. They probably have copies of the Old Testament books that were left over from the exile of the Jews in Babylon, which would have tipped them off to the birth of a Messiah. We also don't know much about the star, what it looked like or how it was formed and exactly how the Magi knew it represented the birth of a king. <clears throat> king Herod, we do know more about. There's a whole catalog of horrendous crimes that he commits. He is a demented murderer who kills his own children, one of his wives, and entire households that he suspects opposes him. And when he learns about this baby who's destined to be a king, his paranoia gets the best of him. And he tries to hunt down this newborn to destroy him. <clears throat> and as the story describes, Joseph is warned in a dream and takes Mary and Jesus out of the country to Egypt, where they live as refugees until it is safe to come back. They probably went to Alexandria in Egypt because it is known that that was where many Jewish exiles and refugees lived and they would have had some community there. Now last week we talked about the many themes of the migration of people in the Bible and we considered the possibility that God is sovereign over those movements of people. Refugees are a category of migrant people. And what distinguishes them as refugees is they are forced, they are pressured out of their homes and are displaced either somewhere else in their own country or pushed to another country altogether. Their ultimate desire, a refugee wants to come back home, but they have to wait till it's safe. Now, we saw last week there are multiple stories of people movements, including refugees in the Bible. Some argue Adam and Eve were refugees as God drives them out from the Garden of Eden. Abraham and Sarah, they are forced from Palestine because of a famine. Hagar, the handmaiden of Abraham, is forced from home by Sarah's abuse. Jacob runs from his brother Esau who threatens to murder him. Moses becomes a refugee after he kills an Egyptian and he, he lives in the desert with the Midianites. King David is a refugee with the Philistines uh, after his life is threatened. We could talk about Mordecai and Esther, the prophets Elisha and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Jonah, members of the original church who are displaced because of persecution. And of course, we come back to our story of Jesus and his parents forced from Israel into a foreign country. They probably take the gifts the Magi gave to them and sell them in order to survive. Today, there are 65 million people who are defined as refugees 
because they have been pushed or forced from their homes and many from their homeland. Most of us are aware of the horrendous conditions of refugees from Syria and Africa who are in camps and are there because of civil war. Many of these refugees live in in the conditions that are just dreadful. And as we see the sacred family of Christ forced to flee as part of the Christmas story, what can we learn and apply to our circumstances today? The first thing I want you to notice is how these stories are fulfillments of prophecies. Prophecies that were made years and years before in the Old Testament. The entire Gospel of Matthew is written with Jewish leaders and readers in mind. Matthew wants them to to connect the dots between the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and Jesus as the Messiah. Now, I made a couple of mistakes with Bible references in the outline, and I'll correct those as we go. In our story, Matthew makes it clear that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. There were multiple Bethlehems, but the one in Judea is picked out. In chapter 2, verse 6, he quotes from Micah 5, 2, not Hosea 11, 1, which says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. It's really two prophecies in one here. There's a king being prophesied who is going to be born, a Messiah, a shepherd, and he will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew 2.15 speaks of the fulfillment of what the Lord said through various prophets, that out of Egypt I called my son, particularly from Hosea 11.1. And then the enormously sad prophecy from Jeremiah 31.15 that speaks of the grieving in Ramah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The reference is to Rachel, the wife of Jacob, because she is buried near Ramah, which is by Bethlehem. And then later in chapter 2, verse 23, we're told the family goes to Nazareth, back to where they originated, to fulfill what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now all of these prophecies and their fulfillment again remind us that God is the Lord of history. These things are not accidents. They're not random. They're guided by the hand and plan of God. The story of Herod's slaughter of innocent children is awful. We don't include it in our Christmas programs. We don't put it on our Christmas cards. But it is part of the Christmas story. We are reminded this morning that not everyone loves the little Lord Jesus. We see the ugly character of a twisted leader corrupted by his own ambition. 
There's no doubt Herod is a successful king and he consolidates his position and rule very efficiently. And that often includes killing people. He hates the thought of a king born that will succeed him. And this is a transition for us into our next point. That Jesus comes not only in the fulfillment of prophecies, but he comes to identify himself with human life and particularly human suffering. I think that our romanticizing and sentimentalizing of Christmas distracts us from the sinful ugliness that the baby Jesus is born into and why he came. As I just mentioned, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are threatened by King Herod. He wants to destroy anyone who might endanger his rule. But we need to see the birth of Christ as more than just the political drama of first century Palestine. 1 John 3, 8 says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason for the season is Christ came to destroy the devil's work. That is his purpose. His birth is an invasion into satanic territory. He comes to conquer evil and bring the kingdom of God. Christmas is really a clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's another version of the Christmas story we don't often refer to. It's in Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. And here's how the story is told in John's vision. He says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. A lot of symbolism here. The dragon, of course, represents Satan. And the woman, the people of God. Satan, of course, wants to destroy both the anointed Messiah and the woman, God's church. This is a vision of warfare between God and Satan that represents a cosmic spiritual struggle that lies behind all the events of human history. The number seven and the number 12 represents fullness, completeness. And the number 10 represents power. 
And it reveals to us that Satan is powerful and that he is the God of this age. But Christ is victorious and he is enthroned in heaven. And the three and a half year period represents an era of time where Satan tries to frustrate the plans of God and to deceive the people of God and to destroy us. We see in our story today, Satan attempts to destroy the Messiah even at his birth. And he does it through Herod. And Jesus and his parents become refugees. Again, a refugee is a person who has been forced to leave their country or home in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. As I said earlier, there are 65 million refugees on the earth today. The top 10 source countries of refugees include Syria, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, South Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Maimonar, which by the way, Maimonar is in the east and it borders Bangladesh and there is ethnic cleansing on the border. And those people are pouring into Bangladesh, creating a crisis there. And that is where Amy and Sung Kim live. And it's affecting them. Central African Republic's another one, Iraq and Eritrea, Eritrea. It's interesting, three of the top ten are in the Middle East. Six are from Africa. And much of this is about war. It's also notable that refugees that come to the United States, the majority, are identified as Christians. They are fleeing civil war. They are fleeing persecution. They are fleeing groups like ISIS that want to totally annihilate the Christian church in the Middle East. In the last 15 years, almost 425,000 Christian refugees came into our borders. They make up 46% of the arrivals. Comparison, 33%, about 300,000 of admitted refugees are Muslim. 40 million of the 63 million refugees in the world are displaced in their own country. They live in these awful camps. And it's interesting that Jesus, even as an adult, is displaced. Luke 4.29 tells the story of Jesus in his hometown announcing he's come to bring the kingdom. And it says they got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill of which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. And in Matthew 8.20, Jesus said, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Obviously, Jesus does not enter the world into a nice upper-class family with a big house and a two-car garage. He comes into poverty, displacement, persecution. And he does that on purpose. He purposely identifies himself with the experience of the worst of human suffering and evil. 
And all of that, of course, reaches a climax in the crucifixion where he defeats Satan and overcomes evil and gives us access to an eternity with our Creator. But let's be clear. Jesus is born in the shadow of the cross. And he connects himself. He identifies himself in his birth, in his life, and in his death with suffering and displacement and with rejection. He understands. He knows oppression and poverty. He knows abuse and neglect. He understands homelessness and those who feel hopeless for no fault of their own. Friends, as followers of Jesus in middle America, we are blessed. We are blessed with prosperity. We're blessed with opportunity and relative safety. And this puts us in a unique position to help those who are forced from their homes and who live under incredible stress. How can we do that? A biblical response to refugees begins, I believe, with praying earnestly for them and their circumstances. If the reason for the refugee crisis ultimately is spiritual, then our battle must begin in the spirit. God ordains prayer as a powerful means by which you and I can participate with him in accomplishing his purposes in the world. We can pray with earnestness and continue, be continually praying for mercy to come upon these refugees that God would provide for them because he hears our cries and will answer from his compassion. Secondly, we can proclaim the gospel with urgency because this is an unprecedented opportunity, especially among those who have lived in countries where there's been little or no access to the gospel. Again, I ask the question, could it be that God is orchestrating the movements of specific people so we as the church may be the means by which they hear the good news about Jesus. Friends, many Muslims who are refugees today are disillusioned. They're disillusioned with their religion, with the radicals who have, have just destroyed things. And we have the beauty of the gospel, the God who actually identifies with the refugee. And we can act with justice. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You may remember how Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and yet you neglect the weightier manners of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Are we willing to be advocates for justice and fairness for people who are powerless and who are in need? And we can love sacrificially. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan 
takes in a man who's in need, cares for him, provides for him, pays for him, his, his needs. He doesn't ask. He doesn't ask any questions about his ethnicity. The man's been stripped of all his clothes and his ID. Doesn't ask any questions about his religion. And Jesus asks us to love strangers in this way. Even to love our enemies in this way. We can sum up how we should respond to refugees and immigrants with a command, love your neighbor as yourself. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What would you want if you were a refugee today? And friends, when we do this, we are serving Jesus himself. So as we conclude, I want to remind ourselves that God is sovereign over the displacement of peoples. I don't know how you answer the question I closed with last week. What is God up to with all these movements of people in the world? But he's up to something. And we want to be part of it. We want to join in service and witness. And finally, I want us to also keep in the background, the backdrop to our mission and ministry, that we too are refugees. The witness of the New Testament is that we are spiritual sojourners. We are exiles, pilgrims, longing for a better country. We are seeking a city that is yet to come. This world is not our home. It is temporary. 1 Peter 2, 10 and 11 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Dear friends, I urge you, listen to this, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. As fellow refugees, we want to pray for those who are oppressed and displaced. And as we do, let's make ourselves available to be the answer to our prayers. Let's pray together. Almighty God, sovereign of the universe, we come to you in prayer, knowing that it is prayer that you have ordained for us to engage you, to bring change, to bring salvation and justice and righteousness and hope and love. We pray for those who are displaced and who are suffering, especially for the children who seem to have no future. We ask that you provide for them, that you bring hope to them, and that you end the conflicts, Father, that are causing their displacement. Father, we ask that you give us opportunity to share the good news of salvation in Christ to those who've never heard it, but now can. Give us opportunity. Help us to support those who are doing it. And may there be a response. 
May your elect be called from the peoples of the earth, and may they respond with faith. And Lord, give us hearts of compassion to promote justice and fairness for those who are being mistreated and to love sacrificially those that are our neighbors, to love them as we want to be cared for ourselves. Give us eyes to see the opportunity. Give us courage to step out and to be sacrificial. And may you be glorified and may you be honored in, in, in your salvation and your work in this world. We may not understand it, Father, but help us to join you. In Jesus' name, amen.